Hi, welcome to Dear Sarah, a Sarah J. Mass podcast. I'm your host, Shannon Adams, self-proclaimed Sarah J. Mass theorist and analyst. This episode and all episodes may contain spoilers for the entire Sarah J. Mass universe. If you haven't read all of the books, please proceed with caution. I will try to give warnings before I mention universe connections and spoilers, but shit happens. Last week, I skipped uploading an episode because I was sick. Um, In the previous episode, I mentioned that I had bronchitis, and I feel like it has gotten worse instead of better, so I took the whole week off of doing anything for the podcast. I'm still not 100% better, but I feel better than I did, so we're going to give this a try. I'm currently reading The Unsuitables by Molly Polig. I'm trying to go through my NetGalley library and clear it out. It's called Arctober, A-R-C-tober. And the goal is to try to get through all of your backlogged arcs that you haven't read from a long time ago. I actually received The Unsuitable like back in 2019 and I'm finally getting around to it. And it's 2023, so that's, I don't even want to talk about it. But the goal is I have 26 NetGalley arcs that I need to get through. And I'm going to try to just plow through them and get reviews uploaded so I can clear my shelf for books that I actually, like, am excited for. I'm also reading Queen of Shadows by Sarah J. Mass. I'm enjoying it so far. I'm really loving the whole, like, word caller thing so like I can't wait to talk about that on the podcast. Sarah J Mass News Los Angeles Live hosted Sarah J Mass um, and Christina Lauren. Christina Lauren was interviewing Sarah. Um, I did watch the live. I'm gonna use quotations around live because it actually was not live. Sarah lives in New York now and she was talking about going to like a potluck dinner after the live was over and it was nine o'clock at night when this live was happening so there's no way that this was actually recorded live so that was um, a bummer. I'm just going to go through the big takeaways if you guys did not get to uh, watch the, the, the interview. I guess the biggest takeaway is that she's currently working on the next Akatar book and she said that she is obsessed with it like it feels like a crush like that that's how she feels about writing the next Akatar book so that's exciting. We learned that she actually turned in a House of Flame and Shadow to her publisher like a long time ago and then they completely scrapped it. Well, not they, the publisher, but she decided that she was not happy with it, completely scrapped it and wrote it again. So the version of Hofast that we're getting is actually the second version. And then she also revealed that Bryce and Hunt are actually mates. She was actually kind of, it looked like she was offended that Christina Lauren actually asked her that question she kind of like paused and like just stared at the camera like she's been so clear that Bryson Hunt are mates and people are still questioning it so she was kind of like what the heck like they're mates like that's what I wrote they're mates so they're actually mates so all the people that keep saying that Bryce and Connor are mates or Bryce and Asriel are mates she legit told us that they're mates um I'm still working on annotating a copy of Akatar to put up on my Etsy it's taken me a while because it's kind of like not high priority 
like of course getting the podcast up to you guys is priority getting better is a priority and like getting through my normal like tbr and arc is a priority priority so getting the annotated copy up um has fallen to the back burner but i am still working on it this week's episode of dear sarah is called dear sarah why can't pharah read this is one of the questions that i asked in my trailer and i think it is an interesting question because we're going to talk about like Vera learning to read in this episode like how she feels about not being able to read like for herself and it's just an interesting character and a dynamic that Sarah put in there to make her main character not be able to read like she's not literate but her sisters are so we'll talk about that a little bit in this episode and we will probably touch on it in more episodes going forward and we'll also talk about it in when we in season two when we talk about a court of mist and fury this episode we are covering chapters 11 through 15 so uh here's just a little summary if you guys haven't read these chapters in a while favor thinks that her father has come to rescue her but it's actually the puka in the last episode i actually called it the bogue but it's the puka i know i was wrong i just wanted to point that out it's the puka not the bogue tim tam gets himself all beaten up by the bogue and Feyre tends to his wounds. We get to see Tamlin study for the first time where Feyre starts to try to read and we learn about the the cereal. Then we meet our favorite character, the cereal, our favorite tea spiller, and we also get to meet some other um, creatures like the Naga. Okay, so we're going to start in chapter 11 on page 95. It's the first page. A quick survey of the ground beneath my window revealed no one outside, and the silent house told me no one had spotted my father yet. So this is funny uh, later, because we learn that there actually are, like, tons of fairies wandering around the manor. When I read this, I actually think of that one meme where it's the the two guys, they're, like, bent over laughing so hard, um, and they're, like, stumbling around. Like, I think that that is like the other fairies like watching Feyre like think that she's alone and like by herself. So that's funny when later when we learn that everything's been glamored. Next we're on page uh, 99 towards the top. Because he was deadly enough. I tried not to think about it but I still asked were you trained as a warrior then? Yes. When I didn't reply, he added, I spent most of my life in my father's war band on the borders, training as a warrior to one day serve him or others. Running these lands was not supposed to fall to me. This is interesting because we start to see the similarities between Feyre and Tamlin. Tamlin is the youngest of all of his brothers. And because of that, he was not being trained to become the next high lord of course high lord doesn't necessarily fall to the next like the eldest the high lord's kind of just picked by the magic like which one is the strongest or like the better suited to be the high lord but he was not expected like this um the title was not expected to fall to him so he was being trained as a warrior um to be in his father's armies or to serve someone else Feyre is the youngest and the like job of running the household or even just being the person who takes care of the family was not supposed to fall to her 
So this is kind of like how we can tell that Tamlin and Feyre are like mirrors of each other. And I think this is also when like Feyre starts to see that they are similar and her pers- like her perspective of him starts to switch because she's like, oh, we are similar. Like he understands like my situation kind of thing. On the next page on chap- um, page 100, there's a quote. And this is what, when I read this quote this time around, so this is the fourth time I've read this book. When I read this quote this time around, I literally, like, my jaw dropped when I realized, like, what this breadcrumb was. And as soon as I read it, people who have continued reading this series, you're going to know, like, this, what this is. Um, If you, this is about Lucian and his, like, parentage. So if this may be a spoiler, like, if you're reading this for the first time, but whatever um this is Feyre kind of like thinking to herself over the next three days I found myself joining Lucian on Andreas's patrol while Tamlin hunted the grounds for the bogue unseen by us despite being an occasional bastard Lucian didn't seem to mind my company and he did most of the talking which was fine it left me to brood over the consequences of firing a single arrow so the part that I want to point out is despite being an occasional bastard Lucian is not an occasional bastard he is 100% a bastard because he is not his father's son like can you believe I'm like tapping my book like pointing at this line like can you believe that this has been here this whole time like I like I'm speechless that this was in there on page 100 in the first book like how many times have we read this and just glossed over it but here it is like she told us in the first book through Feyre's thoughts so I don't know I just thought that was interesting um a couple lines down is our next quote um it's Feyre kind of like observing her surroundings that very morning I spied a red doe in the glen and aimed out of instinct my arrow poised and to fly right into her eye as Lucian sneered that she was not a fairy at least. But I stared at her, fat and healthy and content, and then slackened the bow, replaced the arrow in my quiver, and let the doe wander on. So a couple times now, I have compared Feyre to a doe. In the beginning, the doe was malnourished, skinny. On page four, we see the first doe, Less than 30 paces away stood a small doe, not yet too scrawny from winter, but desperate enough to wrench bark from a tree in the clearing. So that deer, it was small and desperate to find food, which was also Feyre's situation. Um, She was underfed because it was winter. She wasn't finding a lot of game or animals to hunt, to eat. And she was desperate, going further out into the woods than she ever had before to hunt for food, just like the doe. Now, on page 100, we're seeing a doe that is fat and healthy and content. So Feyre is now in the fairylands where she's being fed and she has time to do whatever she wants. Like she no longer has to take care of her family, like her like future and like what she does is her own in her own hands so Feyre is could also be described as fat and happy and content 
But as I was taking my notes for this episode, this thought occurred to me. And in my notes, it's just all capitalized. I said, or is the doe her family? Because Tamlin tells her that her family is fed and comfortable. So that might also be something else to consider because in the beginning of the book, Feyre's family is also underfed. That's why Feyre is going out further to find to look for food. And now the doe is fat and happy. And Tamlin has just told Feyre that she does not need to worry about her family because they are being taken care of. So that in her, her mind, she sees her family as happy, content, and well-fed. So is the deer Feyre or is Feyre imagining that the deer is her family? I don't know, but those are two potential options for that. We are moving right along to chapter 12. Right in the beginning, um, we are going to kind of talk about the hunter Feyre. I'm going to read a little bit here. I couldn't entirely shake the horror, the gore of my dream as I walked down the dark halls of the manor. The servants in Lucian long since asleep. But I had to do something, anything, after that nightmare, if only to avoid sleeping. A bit of paper in one hand and a pen gripped in the other, I carefully traced my steps, noting the windows and doors and exits, occasionally jotting down the vague sketches and X's on the parchment. It was the best I could do. To any literate human, my markings would have made no sense. But I couldn't write or read more than my basic letters, and my makeshift map was better than nothing. So this is the first time that uh, we really know that Feyre can't read. She tells us herself that any other literate human, her markings would have made no sense. She couldn't write or read more than her basic letters, so she knows like her alphabet. But even though she can't read, she's using what she knows to the best of her ability. And this is how this is relating back to the hunter Feyre that I was talking about. She's using her skills that she has to try to make a map of some kind or like an escape route. Like she can't be like, this is a door, this is a window. But like she's using like her artistry skills of drawing and like basic rudimentary like alphabet letters to try to make a map for her escape. Um, And she says it was better than nothing. And like, that's just like her instinct of trying to use her skills in case something were to go completely wrong. At the end of the next paragraph, Vera says, I couldn't entirely let go of the instinct. So she's saying that she can't let go of the instinct of like finding the best escape route, the best way out, the best place to hide if something were to go wrong. And I think that's because like she doesn't, entirely feel safe yet so that brings me back to the doe like maybe the doe is not actually Feyre because the doe was content and happy and this just goes to show us that she's not completely happy like where she is like if you're happy in a situation like where you are you're not thinking about how to escape like how to leave I guess the doe is more like her family instead of her because clearly she still doesn't feel completely safe like where she is on the next page this is something that i'm going to talk about a little bit later in a couple pages but since it's mentioned here for the first time i'm going to bring it up this is page 104 it says a breeze announced his arrival and i turned from the table toward the long hall to the open glass doors to the garden so several times in this book when tamlin comes into like the scene favor notes that there's a breeze So like a breeze literally announces his arrival. 
we will talk about this later and like what this might mean and like a possible theory that I have, but this is where it's mentioned for the first time. Tamlin is in his beast form when he oh, um, comes into the scene. So I'm going to read uh, Feyre acknowledging, like observing him coming in. I'd forgotten how huge he was in this form. Forgotten the curled horns and lupine face, the bear-like body that moved with feline fluid- fluidity. His green eyes glowed in the darkness, fixing on me, and as the door snicked shut behind him, the cl- clicking claws on the marble filled the hall. I stood still, not daring to flinch, to move a muscle. Feyre is not she's like afraid to move as he's coming in to me that just screams that she feels like the prey in this situation tamlin is in his beast form he is clearly the predator his beast form is literally like an apex predator a bunch of them like mixed together and Feyre feels like a prey like she does not want to move does not want to bring attention to herself so that's just Going back to that theme that we're seeing where Feyre is feeling like she is at the bottom of the food chain. One line or two below that, it says, He continued towards me, stealing the air from the entire hall. He was so big that the space felt cramped, like a cage. Again, more language that Feyre feels um, trapped, that she feels like a prey, and that she is being hunted. On page 107, we get like a big foreshadowing breadcrumb that relates to the big reveal at the end of the book. It's at the bottom of page 107. For someone with a heart of stone, yours is certainly soft these days. And that is Lucian speaking to Tamlin in a situation where Feyre can overhear what he's saying. This is super important later that Lucian says this in the presence of Feyre. It's important. So that's why we're, we're bringing it up. So on page 109, after the chapter break, this is the potential universe spoiler that I was talking about. I'm just going to read the the line and then I'll talk about why I can't get, like I keep thinking that this is connected or something. Tamlin led me down the halls. A soft breeze laced with the scent of roses slipped through the open windows to caress my face. So Tamlin is involved like Tamlin is in the halls, it's Tamlin and Feyre, and a breeze comes in. So I mentioned that the breeze comes when Tamlin is um, in the scene. In this time, the breeze is sent is laced with the scent of roses. In Throne of Glass, there's a scene where Selena is in her bedroom chamber, and she has revealed the the passage, the hidden passage behind the tapestry, and she gets a breeze come up from the passage that's scented with roses. I normally wouldn't pull out another book to read a quote, but because the the language is so similar, I actually am going to pull it up and like read you this quote. This is Throne of Glass, chapter 23, page 161. She was sweating, and the sweat on her back felt uncomfortably like blood. She felt dizzy, nauseated, too small and too large all at once. Though her windows were shut, an odd draft from somewhere in her room kissed her face, smelling strangely of roses. So what does this mean, Shannon? What does this mean? I have no idea. But it's too much of a coincidence to not bring it up. Again, the passage in Akatar, it's a soft breeze laced with the scent of roses in Throne of Glass, it is a breeze that kissed her face, smelling strangely of roses. This is the only time that the breeze 
in Agatar is scented of roses. Yes, she's she's in the spring court where roses are growing. It's a court of thorns and roses. Of course, there's roses. We see a rose later on. There's roses in the spring court. This is the only time that the breeze smells like roses. The smell of roses we know is being in Throne of Glass is coming up out of that secret passage. So is someone hinting, giving hints to Vera and Selena with the scent of roses? Who is connected with the scent of roses? I don't know. But someone is, and they're pointing them in these directions. It's both in the first book of the series. Like, there is some kind of connection. I just, I don't really know what it is. So when I said that I had a theory, I guess I lied because I really don't. I, they're just connected, and I don't know how or why. Someone is pointing them in, in these specific directions. Is it the mother? Maybe. That's all I have. But I just, I wanted to point that out because, like, what the heck? <laughs> it's, like, too weird to not, to not point it out. On page 10, uh, 110, I'm gonna read this one. He gave me a crooked smile, more genuine than all of the faked smiles and flattery he'd given me before. Regardless of the treaty, if you want to stand a chance at escaping my kind, then you'll need to think more creatively than stealing dinner knives. But with your affinity for eavesdropping, maybe you'll someday learn something valuable. Right next to it, I wrote, doubt it, lol. But this is Tamlin telling Feyre, not that he knows that she's eavesdropping, but that he and Lucian are purposefully dropping hints for her to eavesdrop and that she needs to pay attention. Earlier... Alice told her to keep her ears open and listen. Now Tamlin is telling her to eavesdrop. All of them have been dropping hints this entire time that she needs to pay attention to what's going on and to eavesdrop to note what she's listening to. But we all know that Feyre is very stubborn and she does not heed any of this advice until literally the last possible second that she could potentially do anything. But... <laughs> We'll talk about that later. On the last page, page 111, we start to see how Feyre looks at Tamlin begin to change. I'm going to read the sentence before what I want to point out just for some context. Tamlin went rigid, scanning the hall around us, taking in every sight and sound and scent. Then he shrugged, too stiff to be genuine. I'm an immortal, but I have nothing but time, Feyre. He said my name with such intimacy as if he weren't a creature capable of killing monsters made from nightmares. This is like the first time that she imagines that Tamlin is something more than a warrior, than this monster, this killing machine. At the end of this page, Feyre also notes that Tamlin strode ahead and opened a set of double doors at the end of the hall. The powerful muscles of his back shifted beneath his clothes. I'd never get, forget what he was, what he was capable of what he'd been trained to do but she is noticing more like intimate things about him like how he says her name like how his muscles like shift and move like on his body so we're starting to see her gaze change around centered around Tamlin we're getting more of like the female gaze now as Tamlin is like as Feyre is observing Tamlin and we'll see that more throughout the book moving on to chapter 13 this is one of my favorite chapters in the book because we finally get to see into Tamlin's study. And one of my headcanons is that actually all of the libraries are connected in some way. 
And I'm not excluding Tamlin's study because it's also kind of like a library. All of the libraries and studies throughout the SJM universe are important in some way. And Tamlin's study is included. Like there's also something important in here to the universe. We get to learn a little bit more about Feyre's upbringing and her education in this chapter as well. It wasn't entirely my fault that I was scarcely able to read. Before our downfall, my mother had sorely neglected our education, not bothering to hire a governess. And after poverty struck and my elder sisters, who could read and write, deemed the village school beneath us, they didn't bother to teach me. I could read enough to function, enough to form my letters, but so poorly that even signing my name was mortifying. We know that they did not have a governess. A governess is kind of like a live-in teacher that teaches the children how to read, write, do mathematics, how to play the piano, how to do art, how to learn different languages, and they did not have one. And this was before they lost all of their money. So they had money and their mother chose not to hire a governess to teach them, which is a bizarre, like a bizarre choice considering how much money they had in their position, a governess would have been just standard. Like their family should have had a governess. So I think that's weird. Like the whole, anything that has to deal with the mom is weird. Like I feel like it's not normal. So I just, I wish we knew so much, so much more about the mom because I want this to make sense. <laughs> so after poverty struck, that means that their mother has already passed away because their mom did not get to see their downfall. Nessa and Elaine could read and write. I'm assuming that the mom taught them, that the mom was their governess. That's what I'm assuming, that the mom taught them how to do things. Later in Akasif, we learn what Nessa learned from the mom, and we know that the mother neglected Feyre in that part. Like, she did not teach Feyre basically anything except for how to paint, how to draw. Feyre could only write her alphabet and sign her name. That's it. Like she knows what the letters are and she knows how to put those letters together to make her name. Like that's all she really knows how to do. Literally the most basic part of reading and writing, that's what she knows how to do. And it just, it's just so sad to see that that's that Feyre was neglected in this way that her mom neglected to teach her the same things that she taught Nessa and Elaine I like to think that there was a purpose behind it but because Feyre's mom is not alive we don't really know her motivations for what she did but I like to think that there was a reason for it and that she was going to teach Feyre something else in place of that um but we'll never know and um before the chapter break we see Feyre thinking to herself, she's thinking in her head, like, if I asked Tamlin or Lucian to write this letter for me, it would be humiliating. And she can hear them saying, typical ignorant human. And this is something that she thinks to herself all the time. There are exactly five times in this section where she calls herself like an ignorant human or mentions that she has like some kind of shortcoming. And I mentioned in the last episode that Feyre is going to start to think the terrible things that Tamlin and Lucian are saying about her. And this is this is really when we start to see it. The first time that we see her calling herself an ignorant, insignificant human is on page 105 of this section. And then on page 113, the page that we're on currently, she calls herself a typical ignorant human. This continues um, throughout the rest of this section and into the other sections. I'll point them out as we go. But this is just 
she is like picking up on the language that Tamlin and Lucian are using and she's like yeah they're right like I'm just an ignorant dumb human I can't even write I don't even know my like I barely know my alphabet like of course they're gonna treat me this way because I'm just this dumb human that can't read I don't know anything so like like this is terrible like this negative self-talk that she's picking up from them yeah it's just sad and the more I pointed out the more you're gonna realize how awful it is I mean, this whole scene, okay, so like I said, like this chapter is one of my favorites, but it's also so sad because she's like struggling to to learn how to read. Like she's clearly struggling throughout this. She's like trying to sound out words and like spell them. And she's like writing all these words down on a piece of paper that she doesn't know because she's going to look them up. And like she's trying the best that she can to learn how to read so she can write this letter to her family like she keeps calling them shortcomings she knows that this is like what's holding her back and it's just it's so sad then later tamlin offers to help her read and it's it's not like it doesn't even feel really sincere like he brings her the list of the words that she's been struggling to figure out on her own throws it in the garbage and then tamlin comes up and she didn't know she didn't know that tamlin was there so like he was like intruding on her and he says i could help you write to them if that's why you're in here and then later she says help you mean a fairy is passing up the opportunity to mock an ignorant mortal and he says why should i mock you for a shortcoming that isn't your fault let me help you i owe you for the hand so it's not like he's doing it out of the kindness of his heart he is saying here i owe you for you helping me so let me help you like that just sounds icky and then literally after that she says shortcoming it was a shortcoming so that she just adds this that he that she can't read that he is trying to quote help her read as another shortcoming she just adds it to her mental list of things that tamlin keeps telling her of things that it's like wrong with her because she's a human so like it i don't a lot of people think this scene is like cute like he's trying to help her like oh my goodness tamlin is helping her try to read i'm like no this is gross like this is icky this is not okay um yeah i don't know i just i don't like it it's icky it's gross yeah but she will continue to use this new word shortcoming all because tamlin said it's a shortcoming she now adds that word to her vocabulary and we will see that in two more pages she says yes it's a shortcoming later but um I'm jumping ahead of myself. I'm actually going to skip back to page 114 because I got a little bit too excited there and I jumped around. Okay, on 114, this is pretty important. Um, Feyre finds the mural in the library. So this is in the study, not the not the library. This is the thing that's important that we find in this library slash study that is an important piece of Perithian of the universe. I'm just going to read this whole page because I think it's pretty important. I suppose the study was more of a library, as I couldn't see any of the walls thanks to the small labyrinths of stacks flanking the main area and the mezzanine dangling above, covered wall to wall in books. But study sounded less intimidating. I meandered through some of the stacks following a trickle of sunlight to a bank of windows on the far side. I found myself overlooking a rose garden, filled with dozens of hues of crimson and pink and white and yellow. I might have allowed myself a moment to take in the colors gleaming with the dew under the morning sun had I not glimpsed the painting that stretched along the wall beside the windows. Not a painting, I thought, blinking as I stepped back to view its massive expanse. No, it was... I searched for the word in the half-forgotten part of my mind. Mural. 
That's what it was. At first, I could do nothing but stare at its size, at the ambition of it, at the fact that it, this masterpiece was tucked back here for no one to ever see, as if it was nothing, absolutely nothing, to create something like this. It told a story with the way of colors and shapes and light flowed. The way the tone shifted across the mural. The story of, of Perithian. It began with a cauldron. A mighty black cauldron held by a glowing, slender female hands in a starry, endless night. Those hands tipped it over. Golden, sparkling liquid pouring out over the lip. No, not sparkling, but effervescent. With symbols, perhaps some of the ancient fairy language. Whatever was written there, whatever it was, the contents of the cauldron were dumped into the void below, pulling on the earth to form our world. The map spanned the entirety of our world, not just the land on which we stood, but also the seas and the larger continents beyond. Each territory was marked and colored with some intricate, ornate depictions of the beings who had once rolled over the lands and that now belonged to humans. All of it, I remembered with a shudder. All of the world had once been theirs, or at least as far as they believed, crafted for them by the bearer of the cauldron. There was no mention of humans, no sign of us here. I supposed we'd been as low as pigs to them. On page 116, I'm going to read the another part that I think is interesting out of this depiction is, In the center of the land, as if it were the core around which everything else had spread, or perhaps the place where the cauldron's liquid had first touched, was a small snowy mountain range. From it arose a mammoth, solitary peak, bald of snow, bald of life, as if the elements refused to touch it. There were no clues about what it might be, nothing to indicate its importance, and I suppose that the viewers had already supposed to know. This was not mu a mural for human eyes. The, um, the top of the mountain, the sacred mountain, where under the mountain actually, I believe, is. It's interesting that Feyre, a human, notices that that mountain is the center of everything where the cauldron's liquid had first touched. I think that is super important. We'll talk about this later when we talk about the cauldron, and we'll talk about it later when we start to talk about word gates, but there's so much here. That is why these libraries are so important. This is important, <laughs> not just to Perithian, but to the universe, like the Sarah J. Mass universe. I'm going to break it down just a little bit. I think, honestly, I need a whole episode, like a mini-sode for this mural. I think I am going to do that. But we learn a lot about the mural here. It started, everything started with the cauldron. Cauldron is full of liquid that gets poured to make their world. The liquid is full of symbols, wink, word marks, and that... I'm going to break down these couple of pages in a mini-sode. I'm actually probably going to record it right after this so you guys can get it um, sooner rather than later. Super important. The libraries, man, all these library scenes, they're where all of the information is. Which is funny because libraries hold all of the information, all of the knowledge. Um, so it only makes sense that Sarah is giving us important bits of information inside the libraries. I want to talk about another thing about this mural. Feyre's reaction when she reads about one of the courts or when she reads about the courts. I'm going to read that section. It's on page 116. I looked northward and stepped back again. The other six courts of Perithian occupied a patchwork of territories. Autumn, summer, and winter were easy enough to pick out. Then above them, two glowing courts. The southernmost one, a softer, redder palette, the Dawn Court. 
above in bright golden yellow and blue the day court and above that perched in a frozen mountainous spread of darkness and stars the sprawling massive territory of the night court there were things in the shadows between those mountains little eyes gleaming teeth a land of lethal beauty the hair on my arms rose so i just think that's an interesting reaction um to reading about the courts specifically the night court um and i will leave that at that because if you're reading this for the first time i don't want to give too much away and then on page 117 i think i jumped ahead and i talked about how Feyre was calling her not being able to read a shortcoming where you mentioned that because i got ahead of myself on page 118 we see Feyre doing more of that negative self-talk i was definitely walking a dangerous line but i didn't care even if he'd offer me sanctuary i didn't have to fall at his feet it means i said with the same cold quiet that i don't know you i don't know who you are or what or what you really are or what you want it means you don't trust me how can i trust a fairy don't you delight in killing and tricking us his snarl set the flames of the candle guttering you aren't what i had in mind for a human believe me I could almost feel the wound deep in my chest as it ripped open and all those awful, silent words came pouring out. Illiterate, ignorant, unremarkable, proud, cold, all spoken from Nesta's mouth, all echoing in my head with a sneering voice. So it's interesting that she hears all of these words from Nesta's voice, but the person who has been telling her that she is all of these things this entire time has been Tamlin and not Nesta. Again, this we are seeing things from Farah's uh, point of view, so it's going to be like skewed. We don't know like the full story because we only get to see things through what Feyre thinks. So it was, it's interesting that she thinks that all of these things are coming out of Nessa's mouth, but we have seen, we have read Tamlin call her these things and not Nesta. Same page, but at the bottom. But that afternoon, when I went to retrieve my crumpled list from the wastebasket, it was gone. And a pile of my books had been disturbed, the titles out of order. It had probably been a servant, I assured myself, calming the tightness in my chest. Just Alice or some other bird-masked fairy cleaning up. I hadn't written anything incriminating. There was no way he knew I'd been trying to warn my family. I doubted he would punish me for it. But our conversation earlier had been bad enough. Her list of words that she can't pronounce is gone. She went back to the trash to, to get it so Tamlin wouldn't get it. And we already know that Tamlin probably has it. So like this just goes to show that Tamlin has no boundaries. This is like foreshadowing of like what is to come that he would stoop so low to dig through her trash to find this list of words that she that he knew that he threw that she threw away in there because he was spying on her while she was in the study and he got it but you know people say that Tamlin's not a bad guy but you know here we are on page 118 um I wanted to call out this I knew it was shameful to mark the books with ink but if Tamlin could afford new gold plates he could replace a book or two and I wrote girl write in those books because that's what we're doing. That's what this podcast is about. Writing in the books, making marks in the books, highlighting, tabbing, like making connections. So Feyre, go ahead and write in your books. Write in Tamlin's books. Mark those things up. In the middle of 119, Feyre again is noting another shortcoming. She says, maybe I was a fool for not accepting his help, for not swallowing my pride and having him write the letter in a few moments. Not even a letter of warning, but just just to let them know I was safe. 
If he had better things to do with his time than come up with ways to embarrass me, then surely he had better things to do than help me write letters to my family. And yet he'd offered. A nearby clock chimed the hour. Shortcoming, another one of my shortcomings. Again, it's just ingrained in her brain at this point, and it's so freaking sad. On page 120, we get more of Tamlin, um, Lucian's freaking metal eye. Come in, human. He could probably detect me by my breathing patterns alone. Or maybe that eye of his could see through the door. So this is not the first time that Feyre has thought that Tamlin's eye could see through something. It, it cannot be a coincidence. Like, come on. His eye has to be able to do something. To be able to bring, to bring it up that many times. And then 122. I think this is um, a funny little breadcrumb. It's like towards the end. Lucian and Feyre are talking about the cereal, like how to catch a cereal. And Feyre thinks another riddle and another bit of information. And I wrote in the, in the margin, and more riddles to come. Like, poor Feyre doesn't even realize, like, what she just thought. Like, there are more riddles ahead of her. And she can't even solve any of them. <laughs> oh, poor Feyre. Uh, moving on to chapter 14. So, she is in the western woods, and she's looking for a grove of birch trees to hunt the cereal. And she, it says, As I passed a large pond nestled in the foot of a towering hill, I could have sworn I saw four shining female heads poking up from the bright water watching me. These are water wraiths, and they will be important later on. So it's, I just think it's interesting that they saw her, they're observing her, and she is observing them. We'll come back to them in another book. On page 124, again, Feyre is talking about her shortcomings. I kept my steps light, my eyes and ears open, and my heartbeat steady. Shortcomings or no, I could still hunt, and the answers I needed were worth it. We know how good of a hunter Feyre is. And she says to herself, even if she does have shortcomings, she can still hunt. And we know that is 100% true. She has hunted so many times in these 124 pages, she has proved time and time again that she is a hunter, a huntress, that she is able, like, that's where she's the most comfortable. I mean, not even the most comfortable. She does not like to hunt, but it's what she's the best at. Even if Tamlin thinks that she's a dumb, ignorant human, that she can't read, that she is, like, she has all these shortcomings and, like, that he isn't, that she isn't what he expected from a human, she's like, whatever, like, screw all that. I can still hunt. Like, the cereal, I got it. This is where I thrive. On page 125, I thought this was an interesting passage, and I wanted to point it out. It says, Did Tamlin or Lucian ever grow tired of day after day of eternal spring, or ever venture into the other territories, if only to experience a different season? I wouldn't have minded an endless, mild spring while looking after my family. Winter brought us dangerously close to death every year. But if I were immortal, I might want a little variation to pass the time. I'd probably want to do more than lurk about a manor house, too. Though I still hadn't worked up the nerve to make the request that had crept into the back of my mind when I saw the mural. She wants to see more of the fairylands, wants to see, like, what's out there. And she's talking about if she was an immortal. She would not want to spend all of her time 
in the manor house so like this is kind of, she's talking about like what she does not want her future to look like and what she does want her future to look like and this is kind of just foreshadowing for book two on page 127 uh we see the serial for the first time in past episodes i talked about how when Farah describes something in great detail it's worth taking note of so we are going to just read this description of the serial a face that looked like it had been crafted from dried weather-worn bone its skin either forgotten or discarded a lipless mouth and two long teeth held by blackened gums slitted holes for nostrils and eyes eyes that were nothing more than swirling pits of milky white those white the white of death the white of sickness the white of clean picked corpses peeing above the ragged neck of its dark robes was a body of veins and bones as dried and solid and horrific as the texture of its face it let go of the snare its two long fingers clicked against each other as it studied me so like that's just like that is like the cereal just reminds me of one of those creepy halloween decorations that you see at big lots that like when you get close to it it like starts making noise and like clicking and like moving around that's what the serial looks like reminds me of i will go more into detail about all of these creatures including the serial the puka the bogue and the naga in a mini-sode but i just wanted to read the description to you since we're here favor's asking the serial a ton of questions but the one thing that i wanted to point out here is this more specific human be more specific for i know a good many things about the high lord of the spring court the earth tilted beneath me. Tamlin is Tamlin is the High Lord. Click, click, click. You did not know. Interesting. Not just some petty fairy lord of a manor, but a high lord of one of the seven territories, a high lord of Perithian. Did you also not know that this is the spring court, little human? Yes. Yes, I knew about that. The cereal settled on the ground. Spring, summer, autumn, winter, dawn, day and night, it mused. As if it hadn't I hadn't even answered. The seven courts of Perithian, each ruled by a high lord, all of them deadly in their own way. They are not merely powerful, they are power. And power here has a capital P. I think that's important to note. I think anytime Sarah decides to use capital letter on anything that otherwise would be a lowercase is important to note. The high lords are not merely powerful, they are power we'll just let that that sink let that float around in your head for like a little bit and then Feyre asks the serial everyone at the spring court is stuck wearing a mask and yet you aren't i said cautiously are you not a member of the court i am a member of no court i am older than the high lords older than perithian older than the bones of this world so if he's older than the bones of this world does that mean that the serial is from another world i mean i think it does if he's older than the bones of this world that means he's older than the perithian so he must have came from somewhere else and is stuck in perithian so where did the serial come from that's the question then we get the famous serial's prophecy on page 129 stay with the high lord human the serial said that's all you can do you will be safe do not interfere do not go looking for answers after today, or you will be devoured by the shadow of a Perithian. He will shield you from it, so stay close to him, and all will be righted. This is something that we will come back to later as we learn more, but this is, I, I'm going to call it the Serial's Prophecy. He's telling Feyre to stay with the High Lord. After he says this, Feyre 
starts to warm to Tamlin. If the Surreal, this all-knowing being that cannot lie, that has answers of, like, he has all of this knowledge, is telling her to stay with the High Lord, Feyre starts to think, oh, well then Tamlin must not be that bad. And we can start to see how she reacts to Tamlin change. And it's all because of this prophecy right here on page 129. On page 130, well, we get kind of more about this blight, but he doesn't call it the blight. For some time now, the King of Highburn has found himself unhappy with the treaty, the other ruling high fae of the world made with you humans long ago. He resents he was forced to sign it, to let his mortal slaves go, to remain confined to his damp green isle at the edge of the world. And so, a hundred years ago, he dispatched his most trusted and loyal commanders, his deadliest warriors, remnants of the ancient armies. He had once sailed to the continent to wage such a brutal war against you humans, all of them as hungry and vile as he. As spies and courtiers and lovers, he, they inf infiltrated the various high fae courts and kingdoms and empires around the world for 50 years. And when they had gathered enough information, he made his plan. But nearly five decades ago, one of his commanders disobeyed him, the deceiver, and the serial strained, we are not alone. I think out of all of the characters so far, the serial has given Vera the most information out of any of them. And I think it's because like, the, the Suriel does not see Feyre as this dumb human. He actually sees Feyre for who she is, that she can be trusted with this information, that she deserves this information. He would have told her so much more, because, but they were interrupted by the Naga, um, which is interesting because the Suriel serves no court. He is not a member of the Spring Court, so he is allowed to tell Feyre all of this information. And he was, in, they were interrupted by the Naga, which, whatever, I'll throw out this spoiler. All of these other creatures are commanded by Amarantha. The Surreal was telling Feyre all of this information that he's allowed to tell her, and he was interrupted by the Naga, which are controlled by Amarantha. That was not an accident. Amarantha must have known that the Surreal was telling Feyre all this information and sent the Naga to interrupt him from, well, from telling Feyre more information. I mean... He, he is the best. And this is why we love the serial because he not only treats Feyre the way she deserves to be treated, gives her information that she deserves to know, but like he doesn't hold back. Like he will just tell you everything that you need to know. Like the serial is the best. Chapter 15, uh, we're not going to talk about the Naga. We'll talk about the Naga in the mini-sode. I just wanted to point out this one thing. The, the Naga say, the dark mother has sent us a gift today, brothers. So we talk about the mother as in the mother that created all things, that um, created the cauldron, that creates Perithian. But the Naga say the Dark Mother. Is the Dark Mother Amarantha? Maybe. Then we're going to skip to page 134 to the top. I gritted my teeth as I swung again. I would not be hunted down like a deer among wolves. I would find a way out of this. I would. So again, we get the the idea that Feyre, well, in this, in this situation, she said she is not a deer. And in the beginning of the book, I keep bringing it up, but because it's so important to everything that happens, the deer and the wolf. Feyre hunted both the deer and the wolf, and she's saying she will not be hunted down like a deer among wolves. She will not be the prey. Like, she is saying, I'm done with this. Like, I'm gonna kick ass and get out of here. And this hunting instinct kind of, like, takes over Feyre um, when she's fighting the Naga. A white hot flame went through me. Rage or terror or wild instinct. I don't know. I didn't think. 
I grabbed the knife in my boot and slammed and slammed it into its leathery neck. Blood rained down onto my face, into my mouth, as I bellowed my fury, my terror. And then in the margins, I wrote, there's our little warrior. So like, this is the Feyre that we love. The Feyre that's confident, the Feyre that knows like who she is, like what she's capable of, and just does it. Nowhere in here was she thinking, I'm an ignorant human. I have shortcomings. Like nowhere in here was she being manipulated by the words of Tamlin and Lucian. She felt like she knew that she was confident that she was able to do this and she just did it like this is the favor that i love this is the favor that like i think is like the most genuine part of her even though she she dislikes hunting like she does not like killing but this is where she thrives like this is what she knows the most like this is like when we see Feyre at her best Feyre sees tamlin for the first time like after Finding out all that information from the surreal, Tamlin got to his feet, wrenching his claws out of the creature's abdomen, blood and gore dripped from them, staining the deep green moss. High lord, high lord, high lord. Feral rage still smoldered in his gaze, and I flinched as he knelt beside me. He reached for me again, but I jerked back, away from the bloody claws that were still still out. How Fever sees Tamlin has now 100% changed. She now thinks of him as the high lord, her gaze changes from here on out 100% because of the words that the serial said to stay with the High Lord. An example on page 136, I pulled on Tamlin's tunic over my own, ignoring how easily I could see the cut of his muscles beneath his white shirt, the way the blood soaking it soaking it made them stand out even more a purebred predator honed to kill without a second thought without remorse i shivered again and savored the warmth that leaked from the cloth high lord i mean the serial did it like he's the one who did this to Feyre. like he told Feyre, like throughout the rest of the, like we're gonna see in parentheses like not in parentheses in italics instead of seeing ignorant human or like shortcomings or we're gonna start to see Feyre repeat to herself, stay with the High Lord. So she's using that information that the Soryo gave her to kind of ignore Tamlin's actions, Tamlin's behavior, and just stay with the High Lord. Because why wouldn't she? Because that's what this ancient immortal being told her to do. It's all the Soryo's fault, but we still love the Soryo anyways. That's all I have for this episode. Our next analysis episode will be covering chapters 16 through 20. So if you want to read ahead, please do. And we will cover that probably not next week, but the week after because I have a few mini-sodes that I want to get to before then. If you want to stay up to date on all Dear Sarah news, please follow us on Instagram at Dear Sarah Bookcast. If you have a question or a theory that you would like me to discuss on a future episode, please email me at dearsarahbookcast.gmail.com or slide into my DMs on Instagram. If you are looking for exclusive content, including my annotations from the book, you can become a Patreon for less than a cup of coffee, which directly supports me and the podcast. You can find my book reviews and book thoughts at Moonlight Books Co. on Instagram and TikTok. Thanks for listening and happy reading. <laughs>